0: Thank you Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. And in this episode, I will look at uh, Dick's 1974 novel, Flow My Tears, The Policeman Said. Um, and I'll, I'll do this in one episode, so it's going to be a long one and there's a lot to talk about. I just think this this novel is, is so rich um, and so thematically well tied together, even though there's a lot going on. It just feels to me that this might be best explored really in 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 one in one episode rather than trying to to break it up um, too much. Uh, so this if you're following Dick's career, or if you were you know around when Dick was alive and you're reading his books, you know, you would have noticed that he hadn't published that much since since 1970 with when he came out with Our Friends for Fullox 8. And a maze of death. He he did publish. We can build you, but as I talked about in the previous episodes, that was uh, actually written quite a long time before. So there's like almost a four-year gap in his in public before he published anything major. And uh, the first novel he comes out with is is Flow My Tears, the Policeman Said. And this kind of begins a, a mini renaissance where he's going to publish. Uh, you know, four novels or so up up to Scanner Darkly, right? And then, then there's another break in his career, a shorter one, and then his final uh, three works, The Valis Trilogy, come out in the last years of his life. So this kind of begins a, a, a new kind of era, I think, in, in Dick's, Dick's writing. Um, it's a very sad novel. It's a very bleak novel. It's It doesn't have any of the comedy and joy, and in this way it really does sound like or it feels like one of Dick's later career novels. Like, There's very little joy in anything from from 1970 on really. I think there's a little bit in We Can Build You, but of course I was written before. There's a little bit in Our Friends from Full 8, but there's not much else. This is a very bleak novel. A Scanner Darkly is a very bleak novel. "Deus Ares um, is a very bleak novel. The Vallis Trilogy doesn't have that much hope in it. Um, so, you know, the last one maybe is... You know, I'm not. I'm not sure how to think about that one. The the transmigration of Timothy merger Right now, I'm not. I'm not sure how to think about it. But there's a lot of bleakness in these later novels, especially in this one and Scander darkly. That it makes his. Well, just it's it's if you like Dick sixty stuff. If you like the humor, if you like the the wackiness of it, you know, you you lose out on some of that. This novel is a very serious science fiction novel, and I think it deserves a recognition it received for being a very serious science fiction novel, it's thematically very, very rich. Um, it's very much a novel of the late 60s, early 70s, and, and Dick was becoming more and more interested, it seems, in the movements of the, of the 60s and 70s. And this novel is set in a world in which America basically entered into a civil war between like the student radicals and the state, the, the pigs, right? Um, it's also uh, a novel about popular culture, about fame it's it's about um it's got shifting realities which is something we've come to expect from from dick's novels but ultimately it's it's a novel about people needing each other it's a it's a novel about love it's a novel about the necessity to have love in one's life that's the core theme that holds together this this story it's told from the point of view of of really two major characters um the first is jason travener and if you pick it up you think this is a novel about jason travener but Dick tells you in the title that the, the policeman is also an important character here. And when we're introduced to him. He starts out as just a minor character, one of, one of several other minor characters. But he emerges by the later half of the novel to really be the, the key character, more important than Jason Travener, who in some ways is more of a tool for, for the story to reveal this, this character, Felix Buckman, the, the, the policeman, the police general. Uh, so it's about these two characters, both of whom are experiencing loss in various different ways, both of who have very difficult, troubling relationships, both are, are in a certain point in their career where they're unsure of their future, um, and both learn something very important over the course of the novel, um, and that's something they, they have in common. But really, by the end, it is Felix Buckman's novels. It's not uh, Jason Travener's novel, um, as, it, as you think when, you, when it begins. Um, it's a novel about uh, a bifurcated America. I mean, there's, it's very clearly stated that this is set after an incident called the Second American Civil War. Essentially, the idea here is that the conflicts of the late 60s and early 70s, racial between students and the state, the Vietnam War protests, all that stuff balloons into actually factions in, in America between the students. That's what they're called who actually organize on campuses as kind of communes and separate states almost in active resistance to the the police state that dominates most of, of the society. And this conflict is uh, is ongoing. And then of course, as with any dystopian future future, you know, science fiction stories set in the future, you're gonna have things like you know, forced labor camps, the police state, surveillance state, and all that stuff we've come to really expect from from Dick's novels and from, you know, a lot of dystopian fiction of the time. Um, in this sense it's really one of Dick's darker dystopias it's there's not much for in terms of reform there's a little bit Felix Buckman is a reformist uh, member of this military state police state but he's got his limits of how far he's going to go to reform things and this war is perpetual it's it's there doesn't seem much hope that the students can organize an effective resistance against this state, which controls um, every aspect of people's lives. In fact, the core theme of the novel, the core plot of the novel surrounds a character who doesn't seem to have a police record and then how this kind of throws all kinds of things out of, out of whack. It's also a story about drugs. It's, I would urge you, if you're picking up this novel for the first time, to reread or to read for the first time The Faith of Our Fathers, which I've already talked about in another episode that was a, a like a later 60s short story by Philip Dick published in Dangerous Visions that plays with the idea of, of drugs being something that releases you from from a delusion right or like the anti hallucinogen drug that we're all hallucinating we're all in a collective hallucination and then drugs become a way of breaking free of that hallucination that's a thing that's important in a lot of Dick's later work especially this novel if there's so, there's a lot about the drug culture here. Um, I think if you read Scanner Darkly and you see it, as many people do, as Dick really throwing up his hands in disgust at where the drug culture has gone to and, and where it's left people, um, Dick basically openly says that that's what that book is about in his, in his afterword to it. But um, if you, you know, you can see the roots of that, I think, here, where there's a lot of, of negativity and malaise about, about the use of drugs. Um, it's also a novel about, about gated communities and about the divisions in our societies. Um, the main character is from, he's rich. He's genetically superior to most other people. He's what's called a six. He's a genetic experiment. He's a six because he's the six in a series. So in the, the, you know, so this is set, I think in the eighties and and so it's not setting that far in the future, but Jason Travener is 40. So this means these experiments would have took place in the 40s. And they created superhuman people. Ones were the first experiments, twos, threes, fours, up to sixes. Um, and Jason Travener is a six. So these are people who have an identity as sixes, um, but they're stronger. They're they're mentally more acute. You know, they're, they're smarter. They're just genetically enhanced. It's, it's a bit like Gattaca that way. But there's not a lot of them. They're... It's not like like in Gattaca, everyone is genetically enhanced. Here, it's just a handful of people who were, I guess, beneficiaries of these experiments, uh, have this identity as sixes or whatever, and they carry it around. Um, It's not an organized group necessarily, but they they do have an identity as sixes. Um, Sometimes they, they couple together. So um, Jason Travener, though, he's part of the elite. He's a performer. He's an entertainer. He's got an audience of 30 million people on the, on the boob tube. He's like a variety show host. He's like, a, I guess, a Johnny Carson kind of character almost. But he can sing. He can dance. He's, he's loved by, by millions. Has many hot girlfriends. And so he's that typical kind of uh, decadent celebrity. But he finds himself through a situation that's not explained till the end of the novel. You know on the other side of the tracks literally um and you know without identification he he's one of the unpersons suddenly one day with the unknown so we get to see a society from two sides of of the class divide so we kind of see uh these cities from the perspective of the gated community and the slums and especially in the first half i think one of the most interesting things about flow my tears the policeman said is this back and forth between the the, the kind of the gated community approach and, and the slum, uh, just the day to, how people make, you know, survive day to day in, in this police state. It's a novel about fame too, and how fame can pass. Um, certainly the, the main theme of a, of a famous, or the main plot of a famous performer who suddenly is not famous. No one recognizes, you know, that's, this is responding, I think to, to maybe, uh, was it Andy Warhol who said everyone in the future will have their five minutes of fame? Right, you have five minutes of fame, but you're not going to be remembered. Right, no one's gonna, you know you can't remember everyone who was famous. So people have their moment to shine. They have that one YouTube video that got a bunch of hits, or they have that one time they made news. Uh, they maybe it was when they, you know, they won the football game in high school or something, and that's all they're going to get for fame. Now Jason Travener you know, have a has a broader audience, but still. The the high turnover among celebrity dumb is is a theme I think Dick is is starting to play with here. And that's one way to read what's going on in in the novel. So there's a very much, uh, quite a lot going on in this story. Um, It's very, very emotional. It's, It's very emotionally complex and rich. And a lot of these characters are basically kind of miserable dealing with heavy, heavy stuff. Uh, and they're doing it in the context of a, of a society that doesn't allow much mobility or flexibility or or escape. It, it's all rather, it's, all, it's a very, very bleak place. And and I think that may turn off some, some readers. I, it turns off me, actually, to be honest, from time to time. It's not a novel I like going back to very much. I, I prefer his mid-60s stuff, the wackiness, the weirdness, the, the humor. But... I can't deny the power of Flow My Tears, the, the policeman said. Now let's talk about the name briefly, Flow My Tears, the policeman said. Um, if anyone, if you have any awareness of Philip Dick, you know he liked John Dowland's lute music. Uh, it's, it's a well-known fact about him. And one of his most favorite you know, songs written by John Dowland is Flow My Tears. And... And the book's actually in four parts, three big parts. The fourth part just, part four just opens up with the epilogue. But each part then has one verse of, of the song, Flow My Tears, which so is like from the 16th century. Um, it's, it's a very sad song, obviously. It's about loss and, and loneliness and exile, which are, are the themes of the novel. So I don't think it's misplaced to put it there. But it is, it is Dick showing off a, a song he very much likes and, and kind of advertising it and shilling for... for well, shill's the wrong word because you know, John Dowling's not, not trying to sell CDs or anything. But he is, uh, he, he is using this novel as, as a way to, to try to go for an interpretation of, of, of this song. So if you haven't, you might want to go check out the the lyrics to flow my tears and, and it'd be a fun exercise to see if verse for verse it, It's tied to it. I'm um, certainly we have a character in exile Like like we do in the narrator of of the song flow my tears we have uh, themes of lost fortunes lost identities lost friendships um, You know and, and and just the overall bleakness of the novel I f- think fits the bleakness of, of that song. So that's um, what else is there to say about this in the introduction? I don't know I'm sure I'm sure I'm skipping out on a lot of things, but it's it's a very, very interesting novel and certainly one that that we need to grapple with uh, to fully understand Dick's career, especially his later career. Um, and that, that kind of dark turn I've been alluding to. Now, I, I should say that this novel won an award. It's one of the two major awards that, that Dick won during his lifetime. The first was the Hugo for The Man in the High Castle, 1962. Um, this book won the John W. Campbell Memorial Award for Best Novel of the Year in 1974. Um, so it was, it was appreciated by the, by the science fiction community at the time for, for a great achievement. So the novel opens with Jason Tavener uh, finishing the show. It's October 11th. This whole novel is set from I think it's October 11th to maybe October 13th or 14th. So it's just set over over two or three days in the life of, of Jason Tavener and this police general Felix Buckman. It opens with him just finishing the weekly weekly show, and it's, it's a television variety program. is essentially what he runs, and he's a very famous pop culture celebrity he's got a followers following up about 30 million people so he's he's not a nobody he's not just like a youtuber that maybe a few people would recognize he's a big name you know the kind of guy who's on tv every week um, now we also learned very early on that we are in a police state and, and of course it's in the title the policeman so we're, we're in a society where police hold incredible power over everyone else now, as the police are introduced, though, they're there to help Jason Travener get to, like, his car and to escape the rampaging crowd. So it, we don't quite maybe realize right away that these police actually are part of a larger apparatus that's oppressing uh, the people of the United States, right, coming out of a con- the conflict of, of the 60s, it seems, um, coming out of the conflict, really the Nixon years. There's, there's actually a suggestion here of Nixon, who would have still been president when... when Philip Dick was writing this, um, you know, of being really like a praised figure, uh, one of the great heroes of the United States at the time. Um, now, much of this this chapter is him having a conversation with Heather Hart, who's essentially his his girlfriend, and she wants to move in with him. Currently, they're both famous celebrities. They're both sixes, so they both are products of these genetic experiments, and they they don't have kids though. Jason Travener is someone who doesn't keep connections. He's um, You know, he goes through girlfriends pretty quick. Heather Hart is one he's kept around for a while, but most of we hear through his um, point of view chapters and and from others that he basically goes through girlfriends incredibly quickly. He doesn't keep any connections. And he admits to characters later on that he doesn't want to have too strong of connections with with anyone. He's also a character who doesn't really want to appreciate the reality right in front of him. For instance, uh, when Heather Hart, his girlfriend, uh points out, you know, he's getting old and he's got to think about settling down. He's got to think about, you know, does he want to have kids? He's like, I think he's like 40 or something uh, during the novel. You know, he says, well, sixes don't grow old. So I don't know if that's a myth or maybe they do age slower than other people, but Heather Hart points out that, you know, he's been dying his hair a little bit. So uh, it does seem that sixes do grow old and he's starting to grow old and he has to start working looking about a life beyond the 30 million people who ogle him um, from the television every every night so she basically wants to move into his house in in zurich and not just be a a guest or a visitor so you know it, it, they're just basically finding out who you know whose house they're going to spend the night with and it's it's just a it's a it's a conversation it's it's what you'd expect from a a famous celebrity who really doesn't have that much interest in the people around him for their feelings or their 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 concerns and his indifference to Heather Hart is something where, you know, we, we see on display here. Um, now, before the community resolution to this, he gets a call from an old girlfriend, Mar- Marilyn. And, and of course, he's gone through a lot of these, right? Now, Marilyn was a woman, not not a six, not a five, just a normal woman who wanted to get, you know, a position. And, and he basically, I guess he kind of Harvey Weinstein did her where he... He dated her, um, had sex with her, and in, ex- you know, in exchange gave her a few auditions or helped her get parts. And she kind of botched them. So she wasn't a very good actress and she just sort of botched those um, auditions, but he gave them to her. So he was, he was kind of acting like the creepy, sleazy producer there. But she starts to demand that he come over to her house. He's got something to tell her. And um, Jason Travener is completely indifferent to her concerns. In fact, Jason Travener, in many ways, is not an appealing character at all. You want to sympathize with him, perhaps, because he is, for the first half of the novel, you think this is a novel about him. You certainly don't think you're going to sympathize with the policeman by the end of the novel, but he's a much more appealing character in a lot of ways than Jason Travener, who's totally, um, lives in the skated community where he has no awareness of the suffering he causes, the suffering of the people around him. Now, Felix Buckman, a police captain, knows very well the world he lives in. I think that's uh, that distinction is, is, is very conscious on Dick's part. But anyway, she wants she, she this Marilyn wants Jason Travener to come and see her, and she insists that he he arrive, even though he says, "Just tell me on the phone what it is." You know, the worst case scenario, like she's pregnant, right? That's that's what you expect in a conversation like this. The old girlfriend is is pregnant, and you're gonna have to deal with that. So finally, he he does go to her her house. And while he's there, they have a brief conversation and then she basically unleashes a creature on him. It's called a Callisto um, Cuddle Sponge. It's called a Callisto c- Cuddle Sponge. So a Cuddle Sponge from Callisto is what this thing is. It's some kind of alien creature, right? And it attaches itself to you and it it, it digs its probuscuses or its tentacles or something into your skin, leaving remnants there that bad things will happen to you. If, if you don't get medical attention. So it's basically, she tries to kill him with this creature as sort of revenge for her being abandoned by, by Jason Travener. He wakes up shortly after in the hospital, on a hospital bed on a gurney, but he quickly, and he sees Heather Hart there, and he's able to have a little bit of conversation with, with them, but he quickly passes out again, and that's how the chapter um, ends. Um, just another thing I want to say about this chapter. It's actually there, There's 27 chapters in this book, and this is one of the longest. It's, it's 14 pages, maybe 12 pages. It's one of the longest chapters in the, in the entire book. Um, it's, it's, it's a more quick pace, chapter by chapter, than a lot of his, his stories. Um, but um, one thing I wanted to say about Jason Travener is he tends to always see with the women around him in terms of their physical attributes, right? They're, they they're never are, I, literally, beauty's just skin deep for, for Jason Travener. This is how, this is what you get about Marilyn Mason. Um, quote, this is that that ex-girlfriend. Quote, for two years, Marilyn Mason had been his protege, so to speak. Anyhow, she wanted to be a singer, be famous, rich, love like him. One day she had come wandering into the studio during rehearsal, and he had taken notice of her. Tight little worried face, short legs, skirt far too short, and had, as was his practice, taken it off at first glance. And a week later, he had arranged for an audition for her with Columbia Records, their artist and repertoire chief. A lot had been going on that week, but it hadn't had anything to do with singing. And this is how this is how um, Jason Travener sees women and interacts with women throughout the whole throughout the story. Profound things happened to him certainly and, and there are things we we want to sympathize with but he's such a disgusting character it's not just that he's a sexist and he uses women he's a racist he's uh a, 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 almost not i want to say quite a eugenicist but he sees himself as superior to others because of his his genetic heritage and being a six he's really really a gross character and there's there's not much that that make that dick makes no efforts to actually make him very much an appealing uh, appealing person uh, or, or a character and I, I think that's the main trick of this novel Is that it's, it's the policeman who, who is the more well-rounded And, and thoughtful character Alright, so in chapter 2 Jason wakes up In a hotel room He uh, has no ID He's, He has cash He's got I think it's $5,000 cash which is, which is quite a lot he doesn't have any pain. There's no residue of of that attack he suffered. But the main thing that troubles him is he has no ID. And, and you know, for a celebrity to get around, he probably maybe doesn't need his wallet all the time. But, you know, you still have to carry your ID to get through police checkpoints. Apparently there are police checkpoints every couple blocks. So you can't go to the store without encountering a police blockade and the need to show ID. And if you can't justify yourself who you are, if you can't show your ID, you could really quickly end up in a prison colony, uh, a labor camp, arrested. You don't want to have police encounters, obviously. So that's the really shocking thing about him is he has no proof of who he is. He's, and and, and he just wakes up there. So what do you do in that situation? What do you call the people you know? And, and that's what Jason does. He, he calls first his agent, but the agent does not know who Jason Travener is, has no awareness of him. Uh, so then he goes to try others. He calls Heather, her heart had her heart he can't really reach and she doesn't seem to rec- you know I think she no he does reach her but she doesn't recognize him either uh, his lawyers have no recognition of him um, essentially he's become an unperson and becoming an unperson in a police state like this one is is not not good quote I can't live two hours without my ID he said to himself I don't even dare walk out of the lobby of this rundown hotel and onto a public sidewalk. They'll assume I'm a student or teacher escaped from one of the campuses. I'll spend the rest of my life as a slave doing heavy manual labor. I'm what they call an unperson. So my first job, he thought, is to stay alive. The hell with Jason Travener as a public entertainer. I can worry about that later. End quote. So there's two levels here. One is the immediate need to to have ID, to have some identification. To to basically manage just walking around the police state. The other thing is no one recognizes him. He doesn't. The people he calls don't have a memory of him. So why is that? That's a mystery. And and he's not he's not a nobody. He's a famous person, right? Um, you know, even the people he's close to, Heather, his lawyers, his agents, don't recognize who who he is. So um, some kind of something's changed. He's kind of entered in a different world than what Jason Travender either never existed or doesn't exist as a performer. I think what, what we... Essentially, he's in a world where Jason Travener never existed, um, but he, he's here physically nonetheless. Um, now, there's a bigger loss here, though, and, and this is a novel about loss and, and and loss that's... And I think Dick makes a distinction between losses that are meaningful and true losses and a loss that's, that's kind of petty or... silly and and you know jason's loss of fame is, is kind of a petty loss but it's significant to him right he this is what fed him his fame his celebrity status his his ability to seduce women his his power he had over others through his him being a sixth but more importantly through his his career this is what gave him meaning in life And in addition to just being anxious about how he can like literally get to the store without running into the police, he thinks, quote, I am at the bottom of life, he he realized. And I can't even climb my way up to mere physical existence. Me, a man who yesterday had an audience of 30 million, someday, somehow, I'll grow my way back to them. But not now. There are other things that must come first. The bare bones of existence that every man is born with. I don't even have that. But I will get it. A six is not an ordinary. An ordinary could have physically or psychologically... No ordinary could have physiologically or psychologically survived what happened to me, especially the uncertainty as I have. A six no matter what external circumstances will always prevail. And there's a lot of arrogance here, right? So someone who doesn't know what it's like to live in the underclass, who doesn't know what it's like to interact with the police in a a conflict, you know, in in a sense of conflict. A man who doesn't know what it's like not to have money not to be able to buy his way now it turns out he can still sort of buy his way around because he has five thousand dollars in his pocket but he's you know he thinks because he's a six he'll know how to do this right and he's going to find out that there's a lot of ordinaries in the world who know very well how to navigate this police state who who go through things a lot worse than what he's faced right who don't even have the five thousand dollars cash that they can use to buy the way around but it's we just are reminded of his self-centeredness his Everything is about him. If something bad happens to him, this is the worst thing that could happen to someone. If something, you know, if he's going to get out of it because he's the uh, he's a six, right? And and if anyone could solve this problem, it will be him because he's a six. It's that self-centeredness and arrogance that's the theme, the the center of how he's he works through in his head what he's going to do next and what his options are. So Jason, he. Um, he's in a hotel room, right? So he goes out of the hotel room and he goes down to the lobby and, and his first job is to get ID. So he basically pays the because it's kind of a, a shabby hotel. He assumes the, the clerk knows, a guy who knows a guy. So he talks to the clerk and gives him $500 and says, if you'll help me, you'll get ID. If you connect me to a person who can get me ID, you get this $500, right? So um, he immediately resorts to not using his brilliance, not being a, uh, you know not using his wisdom as a six not using his special enhanced genetic abilities he just uses his money so in in chapter three we you know jason travener learns that he's not the only person who's a little bit special um the clerk for instance the what you need actually the clerk goes to take some for a drive to to get the you know to get the the ID to get the special ID and it's revealed that the clerk is a psychic and he does identify something as special in Jason Travener maybe it's the fact that he's he's a six um, but he also realizes that like in his mind he, he's famous and, and and rich and there's something that doesn't really match his present realities and so that discontinuity is something that the, the clerk who's not driving around seems to realize now, if we don't like Jason Travener, which I don't think we're supposed to really like him, uh, we're told very explicitly why we shouldn't like him in this chapter, and we learn a little bit about the racial policies of the United States since the, the since the you know novels written that that Dick imagines. You know, in the context of the Civil War, um, the United States engaged in essentially a policy of eugenics. It it the core of the racial policy was was essentially a one-child policy for for African-Americans. So the idea was that each generation would be halved, right? So it's, it's kind of a slow kind of genocide is is what's being pursued here through through a policy that limited the births of, of, of non-whites. And the clerk is very sympathetic to black people. And, and th- to keep this in mind, because this is going to be contrasted with Felix Bachman later in the story, um, but Jason seems to think that you know like almost good or, or he seems he seems to have quite a lot of racial animosity that leads him to basically agree with this policy what does he say he, he first when he told when the clerk tells about the policy um, Jason said something had to be done in referring to the the racial antagonism in the United States at the time right of course you have the civil rights movement and the black power movement and urban riots and this is the context that that dick is is responding to in when he's writing this um, and at this, the clerk just says, I don't like your racist view. And then Jason responds, there's enough blacks alive to suit me. Um, and then the clerk asks, when, when the last one dies? And Jason says, you can read my mind. I don't have to tell you. And the clerk doesn't tell us what he's thinking. And we don't get it from the narrator. But the clerk's response tells us that, that Jason would be seems to be entirely happy when the last African-American would die. So he's certainly not uh, a racial egalitarian anymore than he's a... egalitarian in any other way of way of life so his racism is pretty deep it doesn't come up a lot in the story but I I think it just is is important enough to be mentioned here because it's contrasted with other characters who who don't have that same kind of racial animosity it's never explained why he has it I I think it just comes out of his overall elitism Um, that comes from him maybe being a six so the person they go to meet is a woman named Kathy and she's the producer of the fake ideas. So she's a very young woman who, who works in an, in an underground office making fake ideas for, for people. So people, if they need to change their identity to escape police block, you know, barricades, to if they're on the lam, whatever, that she's the one you go to. And she's very much uh, a, kind of an egalitarian. She's part of this, this urban underclass that we start to get a window into that Jason's almost not aware existed really in his life. He only sees life through the glitz and glamour of, of celebrity dumb. And, and one of the first things we learn about her is she doesn't charge a set rate for her services. She charges based on the ability of the people to pay. Um, but Jason Travener, he treats Kathy like he does almost any other woman in his life and he just reverts to his pattern of flirting with her and trying to use his charm and his good looks to try to connect her to him. And it, and it sort of works. Kathy does seem uh, to, at least in Jason's mind, attach herself. Now, she may she has her own agendas, as we're going to see, and her own missions here. But it, from Jason's point of view, it seems to work, right, that this this woman is fond of him and wants to be with him. And that happens a lot in with the women in this novel, where Jason encounters them, and he basically sees them as someone to seduce or to have sex with. And and he doesn't really understand their own subjectivity and, or he does it with a lot. He understands their subjectivity with a lot of hard work, I guess, and, and usually not at all. And I think Kathy's the first example of that. But they do more, most, more or less have a pleasant conversation. Jason tells her he's a performer and fairly famous, although she doesn't recognize him. Of course, no one's going to recognize him as Jason Travener, the famous uh, performer, uh, at least not in this part of the story. So he talks to her and and they have a nice conversation and she kind of reveals like tricks of her trade, like even how they can make, you know, f- fake antiques and, and fake documents and fake stamps and things like that. And and Jason's not really interested in that. He just wants to use her. So, you know, he's interested in her physically. He's interested in her as a young woman. He's interested in her ability to help him with uh, with the IDs. So. Uh, but they do flirt a little bit. And then um, Kathy, she's she's a bit skeptical of Jason Travener being a high end. Although, you know, on the one hand, you know, culture culture is bifurcated too, right? So, you know, there especially nowadays, there's people, you know, someone mentions some famous person, a YouTube celebrity or something. I don't know who he is or she is or, or a TV show even. I may not know it. Um, that's because, you know, culture is so fragmented now. But I, you know, I think even in previous times there was like high culture and low culture, and you know there was a culture that one gets to the TV, right? But there's large, large populations that even in the '60s maybe didn't have TVs or didn't really watch much TV, you know. And I think like some of the like the hippie culture was pretty maybe broken off from mainstream culture through much of the '60s. So we can talk about a mass culture. In, in the United States, and I think it certainly exist, existed, but maybe it had its limits, right? So maybe it's not unplausible that a famous celebrity could run into someone who doesn't recognize them, right? That's not unbelievable. But she's very skeptical about the fact that he rose up, and her, her impression is that someone only becomes famous in that kind of profession if they climb over bodies, right? Or if they use connections, or they, or they hurt people. And Jason says, well, no, it's not really like that. That's just a myth. You get there through talent and expertise. And again, it's this arrogance of Jason Travener, who was one of these people who was born on third base and, and thinks he hit he a triple. You know, but you know, he thinks he got there through his talent and hard work when, when that's not true. And we're gonna meet other talented people in this novel who don't have the same opportunities that Jason had. And and what Jason does with them, I think the little growth we see in this character comes in his realization that that he was lucky and that it's it's just like the you know at his birth the universe breathes or something or you know it's just random chance that he even exists and and it's not his it's not that he's the greatest is the you know and he could be forgettable in another universe he wouldn't even exist right that's i mean that's kind of the lesson if you want to take this as a morality tale right the it's like the the famous self-centered guy realizes what the world would like be like without him, and it turns out it would be fine. It would be just the same. Um, now, eventually, during their conversation, Kathy admits that that both the clerk who drove him here and her- herself are finks. You know, they're informers for the police, and that the, that the man who brought her here they're just they're doing it for money. They they work for the police, and and she she explains eventually. I think it's actually in the next chapter. She explains that it really has to do with um, her her husband, who's in a, a, a prison and she wants him freed. And the only way she can get him freed is by working with the police. And, and so she makes these fake IDs, but she also informs on the police and lets the police know who she makes IDs for. So, um, you know, to save one person, she turns on on many others. Now we can, of course, criticize Kathy's actions as they're stated here. But on the other hand, she's She's living on the other side of the gated community. She doesn't have the luxury. She, or She's on the slum side, right? She doesn't have the luxury to to, to be moral, right? And that's, that's an aspect of life on this side of the tracks. It's that one can't be be moral and survive. And it's a, it's a less than that. That Travener, uh, I don't know. Does he need to learn it? I, I don't know. I, I think he's not particularly moral to begin with. So at the end of the chapter, they decide to go to Kathy's house together. And after the after making the ideas and everything, she she sort of says, I'm not going to turn you in. I, I am a police informant. It doesn't mean I turn in every single person who comes in, and I'm not going to turn in you. And, you know, they're going to go to her house. And Jason Travener's mind is, you know, basically, I got another woman. I got another notch in my belt. You know, come I'm in the future. So chapter four begins with uh, our our hero, Jason Travener, going to uh, Kathy's house. And this is kind of a, it's a, it's a rather weird scene. Um, for instance, there's this doll there called the Cheerful Charlie doll? Is it? Yeah, the Chief Cheer- Cheerful Charlie doll, which gives him advice. And we've seen this kind of device used before in Dick's novels, like a little toy thing that, that's kind of an AI that, that can interact with you. I think the Zap Gun had something interesting in this regard. Uh, but it gives uh, Jason advice, and it suggests, essentially, that he goes back with, with um, Heather Hart. So I don't know if, if it's suggesting that this technology has some awareness of the absolute reality, or if it's just generic advice that it's giving, or, or maybe more interestingly, do these devices cold-read people? Uh, the way, you know, psychics will cold-read people to, to make them think that they're, they're in touch with the spirit world, or, or they can read the future, or whatever. Um, so, but this, this sort of um, bothers Jason Travener. But I think the most interesting thing about this chapter isn't this cheerful Charlie doll, but rather it's the general, over, the overall fascination that Kathy has with arts and culture. Um, she, on the one hand, she said she doesn't really know Jason Travener. And of course, we know this because Jason Travener is in a world where he doesn't exist. But, you know, it's, it's kind of presented as a bit odd that he wouldn't, she wouldn't know him. But she has really a deep interest, certainly in in high culture. She's read, for instance, or tried to read *Finnegans Wake*, and you know, if you take a look at that, trying to read *Finnegans Wake* is is probably good enough. Uh, she's she's been reading *Remembers of Things Past* and and things like that. So she's she's interested in cultural things, and I think that's true of a lot of the characters um, we he meets. And and I think there's something to be said about in the terms of this novel, about what Dick's trying to say about culture overall. And, and certainly Jason Travener is a product of a kind of a vulgar mass pop culture that's easily forgettable, doesn't endure, falls away. You know, and I think that's, we can take this, this kind of as a morality play for the entertainer, right? You know, enjoy your fame while you have it, because it could be gone the next day. But certain things endure, right? Whether it's Remembrance of Things Past or Finnegan's Wake, or later on we're going to see a like a pottery. right? And remember Galactic Pot Healer? Um, you actually have another potter in this novel, and they are, that also creates something that endures. So I wonder if Dick is saying something about the, the continuity of culture uh, being superior to the disposable culture of, of pop culture. right? The world would be different without James Joyce in it. The world wouldn't be different without Jason Travener in it. Um, so she talks a little bit more about why she thinks, why she Uh, talks to the police and that's because her husband is in a camp and we just get once more we get a window into how horrible this world really is for most of the people that live there and it's kind of a touching uh, discussion because on the one hand Jason and, and Kathy seems to know this too there's something immoral about condemning hundreds of people to prison camps to save one, but she focuses on her her need for this man she loves. And she points out the letters that she gets as evidence that he continues to love her. Jason Travener, though, is suspicious, saying, you know, maybe it's just the Poles who write those letters and they may not actually be from your from your husband, which is, of course, a pretty cruel thing to, to say to her. Um, And the theme here is essentially how to be noble in in a slum, right? And that's not that easy. And and Jason Travener doesn't even try to be noble. So it, it's not... You'd think, you know, he would have the luxury to be a good, kind person. He's not. He, he uses people. He's racist. He he has no sensitivity to the mass consumer base that, that listen to him outside of getting them to tune in. But um, Kathy here is really torn by her choices, saying, do you know that? Do you... Do you know I haven't any idea what words like that mean? What kind of person do you think I am? I'm not famous and powerful like you. I'm just a person doing a terrible, awful job that puts people in prison because I love Jack more than I love the rest of all humanity. Listen, the only thing that got me back to sanity was that I loved Jack more than Mickey Quinn. See, I thought this boy named David David was really Mickey Quinn. And it was a big secret that Mickey Quinn had lost his mind and gone to a mental hospital to get himself back into shape. And no one was supposed to know about it because it would ruin his image. So I pretended his name was David. But I knew, or rather, I thought I knew. You know, Dr. Scott and I had to choose between Jack and David, or Jack and Mickey Quinn, which I thought it was. And I chose Jack. So I came out of it. <coughs> Sorry. And um, that's thats the the, the the pressure she's into. She's forced every day to make a choice between these people she runs run in, into. Do, does she turn him into the police or her, her husband, uh, who is hoping to earn his way out of the prison camp? Um, so um, there is a lot of evidence here that Kathy's attracted to Jason. Obviously, Jason's six. He's attractive. He's had many lovers. He's charismatic. Um, and, and Kathy falls into it. And there's very few female characters that don't um, seem to fall for this to some degree. And then they go to dinner at an Italian restaurant. And this is where she has a, a major mental breakdown at, at the dinner. So Kathy blanches. Now, what's the reason for her basically having a cotton? A kind of nervous breakdown at this diner well it, it comes out of the conversation she's having with with uh, jason so first he comes into this italian restaurant with a lot of class privilege and this bothers kathy right away where he he says like the food's bad and, and kathy doesn't see it that way i don't know if this is just a, a rich person thing you always know, make a complaint about the about the food no matter how good it is and then uh he kind of is rude to the waiter and she says you treat him just like a servant and jason thinks well, obviously why wouldn't i and then he just sort of says let's get out of here this is a bad restaurant and and when he's leaving kathy you know has this this nervous breakdown she says oh god no what have you done do you know what you've done do you understand fully do you grasp it at all and then Dick writes, Her eyes shut, fists clenched, she ducked her head and began to scream. He had never heard screams like this before, and he stood paralyzed at the sounds, and the sight of her contrasted, broken faces dinned at him, numbing him. These are psychotic screams, he said to himself, from a racial unconscious, not from a person but from a deeper level, from a collective entity. Knowing that did not help. And then the chapter ends with basically the... The waiters and others helping her calm down and, and dragging her out of the restaurant, and then they charge him three hundred dollars for for not calling the police. Uh, you know, and the, it's it's interesting that people fear the police so much in this society that you know just not having an encounter with the police is worth worth money to people, you know, um, which I guess is true in a lot of police states. So chapter five and chapter six are going to end this section of the novel, part one, which is is kind of like the first. The first day or the first uh, few hours of jason's life as a as a as a non-person so but in chapter five begins with with kathy essentially claiming to have fallen in love with with jason and maybe her panic attack earlier had something to do with the fear of abandonment from this person she's falling in love with um his, his main concern is just finding someone who knows him so he manages to call heather again and Heather has really no memory of Jason at all. So it is really in this universe he doesn't—he just doesn't exist. It's, these people don't know him. It, it's not just that he's lost fame; it's much more existential than that. He just does, doesn't exist in this world. In fact, it's kind of funny that when when he calls and claims to be like his lover, her lover, she thinks it's just a creepy fan who who you know bothers her. And she probably gets it all the time. He he even gives some like specific dental records and specifics about himself, but. You know she she has no memory at all of it, and then finally at the end of the conversation he claims to be a six, making that connection with with Heather, and and this just um, basically she still concludes that he's just a, a quote unquote a twerp fan. Um, so he has really no choice but to 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 beg for help from um, from Heather, and he kind of gives up trying to convince her of who he is, and he just. He, you know, he's on the phone, but he's essentially desperate for any kind of aid from her. And I think it's at this moment where Jason really starts to realize the trouble he's in, that he is he's one bad encounter with the police away from ending up in a, in a camp. And this is what he starts to explain to Heather in this chapter. Quote, nobody remembers me. I have no birth certificate. I was never born, never even born. So naturally, I have no ID cards except a forged set I bought from a pole fink for $2,000 $1,000 for my contact. I'm carrying them around, but God, they may have microtransmitters built in them. Even knowing that I have to keep them on me, you know why? Even you up at the top know. Even you know how this society works. Yesterday had 30 million viewers who would have shrieked at their aggrieved heads off if a pole or a gnat so much as touched me. Now I'm looking at the eyes of an FLC, a forced labor camp. Um but you know, Heather really, there's not much she can do, and their conversation ends unsatisfactorily for jason and so kathy and jason continue to move on and that's when they run into this this police checkpoint and actually the chapter ends pretty ominously where the police are like we haven't met our quota yet so good thing you haven't gone through our checkpoint but in Chapter 6, he goes through, and the ideas work well enough. So they, they seem to get through. And at this point, Jason realizes Kathy has this immense power over him through these IDs. She can basically turn him in at any time, and she's, she basically has this total control over him, at least as far as these IDs are concerned. So he's going to have to find another way to, to make it in this world instead of relying on Kathy, who seems to be insane, who has this irrational love for him, who has connections to the police and all these um, but where can he go? So they just go back to Kathy's house. Um, you know, Kathy refuses to to leave. Her husband Jack, and um, and this comes up because you know Jason's kind of seeing his situation here—that he's going to be a temporary, maybe placeholder at best for for Jack. And her commitment to Jack is is always going to be her dominant loyalty. And this conversation, which maybe ha- could have been resolved with a, a kind of a I guess a, an agreement on a temporary kind of partnership, but he gets interrupted by the police who come to the house. and, and, and the man who comes is this Mr. McNulty and he's one of the poles we, we meet in this novel, not the main, not the policeman of the title. That's Felix Buckman, but uh, this man, Mr. McNulty. and he's kind of a, a fat uh, policeman. And he has his suspicions about about Jason, so he, he and he of course knows Kathy as a contact. In fact, he he talks pretty casually with Jason about Kathy's mental state, saying that she's delusional. Going so far as to report that her husband had actually died three years ago, three years ago in a forced labor camp, but it's something Kathy will refuse to accept. And she's just living her a delusional life, imagining her husband is still alive out there somewhere. Um, but their real reason are here is they want to basically take in Jason Travener in for questioning. And they take him in. And it turns out that they have, they pull out actually the wrong report on him. So instead of pulling out a, report, a file on Jason Travener, who actually doesn't exist in this world, they pull out the report of, of a man named Jason Tavern. So they just drop the last two letters of the name. And he's like a, like a repairman or something. There's really no data on, on him. I don't think this Jason Trevor had an encounter with the police before, but the, the picture's there and a lot of the other information. So they collect what they can from from Jason, his fingerprints, his footprints, stuff like that. But he doesn't look like the picture of Jason Tavern. So he has to explain why. He, that essentially, he, he justifies as saying he had some kind of plastic surgery, and that's why his face doesn't match the, the report. And eventually, he talks them into letting him go, and, and giving him, like, essentially a one-week pass, a, a legitimate police pass that would be good for a week that would let him move around the city while they kind of try to figure out what's going on with the report. They believe him enough to give him this one-week pass, but he's going to have to come in and, and follow. They're going to follow up on his story, essentially. And the, and so that's where um, – that's that's part one of Flow My Tears, the policeman said. We start with Jason Travener as a celebrity. He loses that existence, and then he has to make his way in, in essentially the underground Um waking up in a in a slimy hotel finding himself in uh, on kind of the other end of a police barricade essentially right you imagine that first scene where he's you know it's him on on one side and the police are holding back the fans right the masses but he wakes up the next day essentially as one of of the masses dealing with the same crap that they have to deal with every day of their life police checkpoints Um, but also he realizes we, we see just how toxic his worldview is he mistreats waiters. He he's racist. He has feelings of superiority towards others. Uh, he treats women poorly. So all this stuff comes to to uh, is is more obvious to the reader than if we just see him as a as a celebrity. Um, so that's part one. And in part two, so part one's all about Jason Travener. Part two, I would say, is 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 much more about. Um, the interaction between Felix Buckman and Jason Travener as both try to understand what's happened here. Because for for Jason Travener, it's an existential threat to his existence, right? He fears if he gets caught, he'll end up in a forced labor camp. For Felix Buckman, it's more of a bureaucratic police procedural problem. Where does this person exist? In our records, there there should be something about him, but there isn't anything about him. So how can it be that someone exists who shouldn't, who's not in the in the machine, right? This is the a problem with the bureaucratic state. So as chapter, I guess this is seven, begins. We're now in part two. Uh, we get a new. This part two is, is introduced with a new verse of "Flow My Tears." The uh, of "Flow My Tears," the song by John Dowland. Um, and in part two, we're introduced to General Felix Buckman. So he's a police general. So the police have been militarized to such a degree that they have. Ranks like marshal and general, so Felix Buckman actually used to be a marshal, but he was demoted, and we'll we'll see why he was demoted later. But he's a, a high-ranking um, police general in the Los Angeles Police Academy building, and he's working late, and he he's seen he's come across this ta- Travener case this, or this Jason Tavern Tavern case, and he's curious about it, and he discusses it with this. Um, Mr. McNulty, this policeman, the one who, who found him. And so what sp- sparked his attention was this line, uh, Jason Travener, Taverner does not exist in pencil by Mr. McNulty in this report. Now, why do they have this name, Jason T- T- Taverner, right? You know, because they pulled the file Jason Taverner. Well, his fake IDs, the ones he had Kathy made, show his name as Jason tavern right so they have this name they have this these ideas that don't match any record in the in the machine in the in the bureaucratic files and uh so he goes into this case study and starts to look into it and and buckman is very interested in solving this this mystery i guess it's it's outside of the -the run-of-the-mill police dealings he has to has to handle every day it's it's a problem he wants to address i think there's a lot here In Buckman's attitude early on about just uh, the need to kind of tie up every bow and to have everything neatly fit together. Um, It's just a product of bureaucratic state, right? It's a bureaucratic problem that Taverner doesn't fit into, his non-existence. He's also, but we also learn later on that Buckman is generally philosophically interested. He's artistic. He's a very curious person. He's, despite being a police general in a a police state, in an authoritarian uh, situation, um buckman is is essentially a a moral person with with a lot of the moral failings of jason travener are actually filled in by felix buckman so the other thing we learn in this chapter is that he has a very weird relationship with his sister alice and that's spelled L A A L Y S alice and she's waiting in his office and and she's like he he scolds her for being a junkie and being a bit of a bum even a fetishist. And, and he says, like we deal with you people every day in the police station and here you are, my sister. And a kind of a fun fence. And he even says, you can't make my job unsafe. I only got five men over me, excluding the national director. And all of them know about you and they can't do anything. So you can do what you want. She's got a special case. That's the, that's the situation. But she's still a bit of a threat to him. And he wants her to clean up her life a little bit. Now we're going to learn later on that they have a much more complex relationship. They, they live together. They're their incestuous lovers, um, but he does introduce to her the 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 Traverman case. So this chapter ends then with Buckman getting a call from basically the the forensics department of the police um, bureaucracy, you know, reporting on all the like the fingerprints and voice prints and, and stuff that they took from Jason Travener during his encounter with the police and none of them match anything on record right which is even more bizarre it's one thing to lose a record but to have no you know of, of no record at all of his voice prints or something is totally bizarre right that that really proves from the system's point of view that Jason Taverner simply does not exist so chapter eight we return to Jason's story and and he's got this one week police pass now so he decides to you know, just go to, you know, instead of going back to Kathy and, and trying something with her, he thinks he's got a reprieve, so he's going to kind of investigate things on his own and, and try to get his life back together. So he goes to Reno, and he tries to book a room. And here we see one, another example of his, with the privilege he's used to, the things he's, you know, he, like, for instance, what he's used to is when he goes to Reno, he calls the hotel, calls the restaurant, gets a seat, gets a room. And he can't anymore, Right so he fails to get uh, a table at a restaurant and so he kind of gives up on this and then then goes to las vegas where maybe the chances i guess are a little bit better but he's going to his old haunts and when he's in vegas he runs into his old mistress ruth ray right now ruth ray is is not super old she's she's like i think just in her late 30s um and she's actually younger than jason travener but travener who I always objectifies women and sees them essentially as as physical has already been able to comment on on her declining beauty and and how she's making up for that with with makeup and things like that it's, it's again it's once again a very very brutal look at at women we, we we don't see Travener really having any respect for these women in his life although he sees to surround them with them um, in his mind Ruth Ray is is a bit like an aging socialite right she's facing disappearance so she's She's kind of in, in Jason's situation, although for her it's more, more of a long term decline rather than a sudden disappearance, right? But she's also facing a future where she won't be known anymore, right? You know, once you get a certain age, you can't be a socialite anymore. Um, but he thinks maybe she remembers me, and, and we had been lovers in the past. He introduces himself, though, and she doesn't really remember him, but she has so many husbands and so many lovers. In the past she she welcomes him despite not remembering Right, so her life is just filled with this string of of different famous lovers and rich lovers that she's not really capable of, of remembering one over the other so she just you know assumes she she knows him and and interacts with him. in any ways you know even if not even if it is a new person it's a attractive attractive man so you know Ruth Ray welcomes him she even I think claims to know him She says um, oh, no, that's... He says his name is Jace Travener, and she says, do you remember my name? And he says, yes, I remember. But her name has changed. She's remarried since then. So it's Ruth Goldman. That's her, her name. And that, that name's just important to keep in the file for um, a later scene. But... Um, so she's got this new name. And... And she, what does she talk about? Well, she mourns the loss of her beauty, and she talks about the impact of alcohol, and she talks about how she, her decline has sort of begun. And that's really what her character seems to represent initially for Travener, is that sort of it's a, it's a bond with what he's experiencing, like this loss of, of fame. Although in her case, it, it's, it's, not, it's not sudden. Um, despite seeing him as a stranger, despite that knowing who, who he is really, she takes him to her, her house. Now, one interesting thing here is, is, despite being a socialite, despite being well-known, I guess, in the elite circles or whatever, she was almost sent to a forced labor camp, too. So you see the creep of the police state affecting more and more classes of society, right? And I, and I think in one way, that's the metaphor of the whole novel. is Jason Travener from the ruling class experiencing the police state directly, you know, for the first time, right? Which, in the long term, I guess everyone is going to experience, but... You, know, you don't have time in a novel like this, so you, you, you just have it a quick a device for him to experience it. But a lot of other characters encounter the police in unfortunate ways. Not just Kathy, so we see you know, people in the higher levels of society having these encounters. You know, and So here's the story. She says, Do you know they tried to send me to one last year? I had a really terrible time. I had no money. I hadn't met Bob Goldman yet, and I worked for a savings and loan company. One day, a depositing in cash came in, $50 bill stuff, three or four of them. Anyhow, I took them and put the deposit slip and envelope into the shredder, but they caught me. Entrapment. A setup. But, see, I had this thing going with my boss. The Poles wanted to drag me off to a forced labor camp, one in Georgia, where I'd be gangbanged to death by rednecks, but he protected me. I still do not know how he did it, but they let me go. I owe that man a lot, and I never see him anymore. You never see the ones who really love you and help you. You're always involved with strangers. And that, that's, I think Ruth Ray is an interesting character for what she's kind of the conversation she has with Jason Travener and how she really forces Jason to look at the world in new ways. And this is one, right? That you, you know, the, the people that do help you that's her point, right? The people that help you, the people that are really bound to you, float away from your life. And that's what, exactly what happens to Kathy in this story. She's discarded the minute that Jason doesn't need her anymore. Ruth Ray. Uh, will be discarded, too. Finally, Jason will meet a character later on who who he does pay his debt to, right? But also this idea that most of the people you interact with in day-to-day life are strangers is, is of course, true as well. And it's something that Jason Travener is more and more acutely aware of than ever on this particular day in his life. So in Chapter 9, they they go to Ruth Ray's apartment. Um, He notices that she seems to be living beyond her means right away. it seems that her husband now has some money, but he's not really in the picture at all. It's just a name attached to this this character of Ruth Ray, Ruth Goldman. But they have sex right away. Um, and then we get the kind of the scene after after they have sex, and she starts to talk about this woman, Monica Bluff, who is actually Ruth's like sister in law. And it's a bizarre rather it's a bizarre conversation where we see that she has all this resentment built up for this this Monica Bluff character. So actually, I think it's Jason who brings up Monica Bluff, saying, "Well, you know, I do. You remember Monica Bluff? You know, because he had a relationship with her. So, you know, again, like his life is a series of, of of encounters with different ladies, it seems. And he remembers Monica Bluff, so he asks her if she if if Ruth Ray remembers, and she does. But she goes on this long rant about how she shoplifts, how she doesn't wear underwear, how she smells bad, how she like used to." feed the escaped students, the students who escaped the campuses and, and aided them, mm-hmm. and how she kind of resents that she never got arrested uh, and sent to a forced labor camp. Um, or maybe she was sent for a while and and, and, and got out later. Um, but eventually, Ruth and Jason sort of diagnosed this Monica Bluff with hepaphrenia, hep, hepaphrenia which is a, a mental illness that Dick always likes to go back to. We saw it in We Can Build You, and we saw it in clans of Al uh, Now, I guess after this conversation, though, Jason makes a little bit of, uh, he has a little bit of self-consciousness about the way he treats women, because he thinks, you know, first, I shouldn't be comparing Ruth Ray to Monica Bluff, and and that's immediately, that's why he brought her up, actually, because, you know, he's he th- Monica Bluff's younger, and so he thinks of her. And he thinks, maybe that's unfair to compare an older woman with a younger woman. You know, everyone gets older, but... Um, But then he realizes also that he's kind of just using Ruth Ray the way he used other women. And he comes to the decision that he should leave, because as long as he's with Ruth Ray, he's threatening her life and her freedom, um, you know, because the police will come and maybe search him at some point. So she decides to leave. But instead of just explaining that this is why he wants to leave, he just calls her too old. He says, you're too old for me. And she starts to beat him. And now he's afraid that she's going to run to the police if he leaves, so he's kind of stuck with her. Uh, and what's going on in this chapter, and I think with this character, Ruth Ray, in general, is is we see the complex emotions of aging, this kind of this feeling of loss, this fear of being forgotten, which, of course, is what Jason Travener is facing, and kind of the resentment over that process. A lot of her maybe hostility towards Monica Bluff rests in the fact that she's young, she's a good person, she's helping the students, you know, Maybe she's a bit of a criminal to pay for her ways, but uh, she certainly got Travener's attention. Travener remembers her. And you know, to be a woman that Traver, a man like Travener remembers, I guess, is, is a bit of achievement. So, so then we jump to, to Chapter 10. Chapter 10 is, is mostly just Felix Buckman kind of dealing with his thoughts about this Jason Travener case. Of course, it really bothers him. He has a lot of anxiety built up over... The fact that this Jason character doesn't seem to exist. He also has his anger with with Alice over her continued poor behavior. And how does he find counsel? Well, he's a bit of an intellectual, it turns out, and he, he likes to listen to John Dowlin lute songs, just like Philip Dick liked to do. So I, I think we're s I think Dick wants us to realize that at this point that this novel is much more about Felix Buckman. It's in the title, obviously, The Flow My Tears, the Policeman said. Uh, Jason Travener is a pop culture guy. He never would have been one who, who would have appreciated John Dallin's music or, or any kind of arts and creativity. But Felix Buckman, the brutal police general, does. And he listens to this music while pondering the mystery of, of, of Travener, which he sees kind of almost as a, both a bureaucratic problem and even a philosophical problem. He even comments so that he doesn't see these problems like a pole does. He doesn't think like a, a normal police um, a man. And then he gets the call. He gets the call from his his underlings, and they have essentially narrowed down their search for Travener based. On, they use kind of facial recognition software and voice prints that they've collected to try to find where he, where he's gone to. And they narrow down the search to Las Vegas. But they have a series of houses that they've been able to identify using a thermal radex scan. So they're able to use some kind of scanner to identify a handful of houses where someone who fits Travener's you know, situation could uh, would have been. And it's just like 10 houses. So they have 10 houses to check out. One of these, obviously, is going to be Ruth Goldman's Ruth Ray's house. So it's just, you know, when will, when will he be identified? Especially now that Jason has decided to stay with Ruth Ray out of fear that she might turn him in. So, we know another counter with the police is, is coming. So, chapter 11 is one of the, the central conversations of the novel, it seems to me. And I, I think this should be read just on its own if you want to understand this book. Or, this is a chapter you really got to pay attention to. It doesn't really deal with the plot directly at all, but it deals with the overall themes of, of love and, and loss and connection and how to have connection with people. And, and you know, this is all the things that Jason Travener has, has lost, right? He can fall back on his ability to seduce women, but there's no real true meaning into that. And, and that's a discussion they're, they're essentially having now that Jason has decided to stay with, with Ruth Ray, at least for the short term. Now, Ruth mentions a friend with, who had a rabbit and a cat. And her name's Emily Fugelman. And she talks about the feelings of pain and sorrow that this woman felt with the loss of, of these cats. And Jason just responds like how he wants to avoid love and those types of feelings. He wants to avoid grief, and Ruth responds essentially with the need for for grief, and that the grief is an essential part of the essential human condition, right? And and that can only exist in the if if you have love. So, um, you know, Jason thinks, you know, don't love animals, right? They they die too quick, and and I'm. Ruth's response is, their lives are so short, just so fucking goddamn short. Okay, some people lose a creature they love and then go on and transfer that love to another one, but it hurts. It hurts. And he replies, why is love so good? You love someone and they leave. They come home one day and start packing their things and you say, what's happening? And they say, I got a better offer someplace else. And there you go, out of your life forever. And after that, until you're dead and carrying around this huge hunk of love with nowhere to give it to. And if you do finally give it to someone, the same thing happens again. Or you call them up on the phone and one day they say, this is Jason. And they say, who? And then they know you, you've had it. And, well, now, of course, Jason's fulfilling a lot of his own anxieties in this conversation. He's lost everyone. No one seems to recognize him anymore. So he's experiencing this, this reality compressed, right? But that's, his life has just been a series of encounters with, with people. Um, And I think this novelist structure is a bit of just encounters with various people. I think the only character he kind of has repeated connections with in a way is is Felix Buckman. Uh, Everyone else he just kind of passes through one after another using them and and discarding them. And he's afraid of that happening to him, so he doesn't make connections with someone else. And Root says love is an ownership. Quote, love isn't just wanting another person the way you want to own an object you see in the store. That's just desire. You want to have it around, take it home, and set it up somewhere in your apartment like a lamp. Love is like a father saving his children from a burning house, getting out, and then dying himself. When you love, you cease to live for yourself. You live for another person. And and Jason's response to this is that that sounds horrible to me. Why would anyone want that? That's not a good thing. But for Ruth, it's, it's the most profoundly human experience because it's the transcending of, of instinct. It's the transcending of, of the survival instinct. And grief, then, is the culmination of this feeling, right? You can only have grief if, if you love. Um, and, quote, grief causes you to leave yourself. You step out of your narrow little pelt. And you can't feel grief unless you've had love before it. Grief is the final outcome of love because it's love lost. You don't understand, I know you do, but you just don't want to think about it. It's a cycle of love completed, to love, to lose, to feel grief, to leave, and then to love again. Jason, grief is awareness that you will have to be alone. And there's nothing beyond that being, because being alone is the ultimate, final destiny of each individual living creature. That's what death is, the great loneliness. And that's the theme of this this chapter. I mean, the conversation goes on for quite a while. Um, and this is all set right at the midway point of, of the novel, exactly the midway point. Um, but love, love and grief is that, is that cut that never heals. And that is exactly what Jason is lacking in life. Right? He hasn't felt any grief about his loss. He's felt anxiety. He's felt um, anger and discomfort and bothered by it. But he's never at any point felt grief that, these, that he's lost his fan base or that he's lost Heather I guess that's the only character. Or now that he's lost Kathy, as someone who seemed to have generally had affection for him, even though she was a bit crazy, he loses her and he just walks away from her and doesn't feel anything. So he just recycles people, and and that's and Ruth doesn't it seems. Ruth go has many husbands, but she's aware of the loss that accompanies it. In fact, she talks about one of her husbands who she. I want to. I don't have the page number where this takes place, but she essentially says like. I knew he didn't love me anymore, but I loved him greatly. But I divorced him anyways. I gave up, you know. I, I decided to embrace that grief in order to, you know, allow him to move on with his life. But that's that's an expression of love. And this is, of course, I think, very true. Um, and 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 anyway, it complicates Dick's definition of humanity. I, I think so much. So many people make a lot of this empathy as part of. of of the human experience, right? And don't think enough about how Dick talks about relationships. Uh, And I think what we need to do at this point is is actually survey briefly, going back in time, to Dick's writings about relationships. He's criticized all sorts of relationships that exist, ones that are based on exploitation, ones that are uh, based on indifference or practicality. He doesn't have much use for these relationships. We see so many broken marriages from his short stories to the 1950s to his novels of the 60s. Throughout his career, the broken relationship is is a reoccurring trope. Comes again and again, right? The the fractured marriage. But now sometimes these characters get back together and find a new foundation based on something else. Sometimes it's it's empathy. Sometimes it's duty, right? But you know, Dick really wants to have this authentically built. Relationship. He wants people to have lives together that, that have meaning beyond the practical, uh, d- beyond the disposable. I mean, we live in this disposable consumer liquid world, right? Where you you replace employees every few years, you, you change jobs every few years, you swap, uh, you know, you get a new computer every few years. You know, nothing is permanent, right? Everything is liquid. He didn't have that terminology. That comes from Zygmunt Bauman, a sociologist of more recent years. But it certainly, it's, it seems, it very much describes the world that Dick is trying to describe. So what can we grasp to? And, and it seems relationships and love is one thing. It's not just about empathy. It's about actually building meaningful relationships with, with people. We even see that like in Our Friends for Full Ox 8 where, where uh, Nick finds in, in Charlie a, a more meaningful relationship than one he had with his, his wife, the more practical relationship he had with his wife. So this is really key. This is a key moment in, in the novel. And we're going to find out that the other part of this is that Felix Buckman has this with his, with his sister. And although that might be a, a creepy, and his relationship and really weird, it's a relationship that's meaningful to him and to Alice. And it's one he's going to experience grief from. And, and that's something that Jason Travener at this point in his life can't. I do think Jason has an arc here. He does correct some of his mistakes by the end of the story, but uh, Felix is 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 kind of already a fully developed person. So, if, if in a way, I guess I guess Jason's still the protagonist of the story, and that he has this arc. But Felix is the more sympathetic character, despite being the police officer. So, chapter twelve is a a, a really interesting. Uh, chapter that just involves the police going door to door in Las Vegas trying to find Jason Travener, and they go into this guy, Mr. Muffy's house. It's one of the houses they identified, and they find him in bed with a, I think it's a 13-year-old boy, and this kind of horrifies the police officers who are there, but it turns out this is not illegal, and, and we see, it's very interesting that the police state, as it's kind of cramped up laws against the students and, and cramped up surveillance and control, it's also liberated people in what were called the victimist crimes. So the state had gradually been phasing out the so-called victimist crimes. Like drug use is, is not illegal. Uh, I don't think there's any prohibitions on alcohol. So drug use has been legalized, but so has um, consensual sex between minors and adults. There, there's a law. It's, it's not a universal law. There are, there are still illegal sex acts, but there's, there seems to be a few of them. Uh, yeah, so here it is. The new revision in the Penal Code 640.3 has it that 12 is the age of consent for a minor to engage in sexual act, either with another child of either sex or an adult either of either sex, but only one at a time. And the police thinks it's sick, but um, the, the victimless crime are being taken off. So now one of the police officers who's more Christian... It you know responds that this is a victim and and we should do something about it, and he kind of hopes one day to be able to smash him on the head and he commits a real an actual crime, but it's it's just a nice little addition here shaping the world that these characters are in, in the you know the nature of the police state. And I find it fascinating that that a police state would actually engage in in getting rid of these victimless crimes, right? I I don't know if you ask police officers how they feel about marijuana prohibition, you know of course. Like the drug war on drugs, it's a big part of their job, right? And, and some may be very invested in it, but others may find it annoying and obtrusive. And that's, of course, the theme of The Wire, the TV show The Wire, is some police officers really flourish in this drug war. Others see it as a waste of time that it is and want to um, get rid of these, these laws so police can actually do, um, you know, solve actual crimes. Now, of course, this, this jumps right to the really controversial stuff, you know. And I don't really want to state an opinion about this, but it's, um, it seems the police here don't want to regulate people's personal lives. And now that they have control over the laws, they, they phase out these laws that, that are going to require them to investigate people's private lives so they can focus on public security, the checkpoints, suppressing the student movement, and these, these more overt, out-in-the-open crimes. Maybe they're just making their life easier, right? They're in control, right? So it's just, I would be interested if the police could make the laws. What would, what would it look like? And I'm sure writers have thought about this, but Dick here is trying to think about this a little bit. So they find out that the next house they're going to visit is Mrs. Goman, and of course that's Ruth Ray. So chapter 13, the police come in and, and arrest Jason, and place him in, quote-unquote, protective custody. They don't really have a crime, but they want to investigate what's up with him, so... The, well, they basically say we're putting you in protective custody it's the way the police arrest you when they don't have anything to charge you with um, now Ruth Ray and Jason at this point think he's going to be sent off to a forced labor camp and one of the policemen sort of mocks him saying the forced labor camps aren't that bad they're kind of nice and the police are trolling Jason a little bit having a bit of fun with him you know, saying that these, these forced labor camps are pretty good they have TVs and, and you know, it's a nice little community uh, but anyways, he's, he's, he's arrested and taken away. And then we get, um, on, in Chapter 14, the meeting with Felix Buckman in L.A. So he's taken back to L.A. in the police car. And, and Ruth Ray falls out of the story. She's another character who just kind of drops off of the story's radar, uh, just like Kathy did. Um, but he meets Felix Buckman, and he starts to question Jason about who he is, where he's come from, you know, what's up with him. And his impression is that what he thinks at this point is that Jason has gone into all the records of the whole world and took his name out of every record. And that seems to point to him to a sixth conspiracy that he's a part of. Like, Why would you do this? It's so bizarre. Unless it's part of some bigger, larger conspiracy. And Felix Buckman is able to size him up immediately as a six, And Felix claims to be a seven. And that's how Chapter 14 ends. In Chapter 15, we we get right away Felix's internal monologue, that saying that he's not a seven. He, you know. So what does a six mean again? A six is the six in a series of genetic experiments that led to enhanced humans, stronger, smarter, better looking, less aging, longer lifespan, all those things. And six were the best, right? Now, that seemed to have been the last of those experiments, but Felix says, no, 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 there was one more experiment, but those guys did, and that produced the sevens. There's not many of us, but we're there, and I'm one of them. This is a tactic that Felix uses to to interrogate sixes. It's not something he normally uses, but it's a trick he pulls. And Felix is smart, but he knows he can't outthink a six in the long term. But in the short term, he can, so he uses this strategy to disarm the, the sixes. But here we get the whole history of the six program. This is all in Chapter 15, and it's kind of interesting uh, about these genetic experiments, one through sixes, that were, that took place. Um, but Felix really thinks that whatever's going on here with Jason Travener is part of a six conspiracy against the police state. Um, and F- Felix really fears the rises of the sixes. And I think we as readers appreciate why, because if they're all like Felix Traverman or Heather Hart, it's, it's not a good foundation for... For society they're very self-interested they're, they don't see the value in other people the police do because the police interact with they're on the streets right and they have to deal with actual society they can't they don't live in gated communities the way Jason Travener does I think so much of this novel is about the gated community slum dichotomy and the policemen are then people who are they may be the guards of the gated communities but they also have one foot in the slum, right? They're, they're patrolling the border between them. And they have a little bit more empathy for the actual realities uh, in society. Um, so, so he starts to ask questions about Felix's files. And these are a bunch of short chapters, by the way. Some of them are just a couple pages. Chapter 16, Felix Buckman comes to his realization. He realizes that Jason... Is not trying to put his name take his name out of the system he's actually trying to put his name into the system and so he realizes that jason travener is a true anomaly he is someone who's never been in the system which is an impossibility so they 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 kind of reach some common ground here there's a realization that jason travener is not a not so much a, a a criminal or part of a conspiracy necessarily I felix doesn't fully throw that idea out of the water entirely but he starts to trust Jason a little bit more. And they start to have a more honest conversation. But he realizes that Jason Travener is a true kind of person who doesn't exist in this world. But he doesn't really have the tools or the context to understand why this might be. Now, they eat breakfast together. And they have a conversation that parallels very nicely the conversation Jason had with Ruth Ray earlier. They talk about children. They talk about uh, the laws of the system regarding children and how uh, like Jason at one point says I don't I don't have any children I know of and Felix is kind of horrified to hear this because it means that he's might have illegitimate children that he's not caring for and that's a bit of a taboo in this society Um, so there seems to be some sexual morality even if it's not enforced by the police I mean to some degree there's enforcement right when it comes to children there's a lot of regulation and reproduction we've already seen that with black people who are limited to a one-child policy but there's a um, this this kind of horrifies Felix who wants to have kids and love kids and and is bothered by his indifference to to the children that he might have out there he finally though lets Jason go but he says he's going to monitor Jason's whereabouts and keep an eye on him so in chapter 17 we have um, we have Felix Buckman pretty proud of him, him kind of Sort of outsmarting a Six for a while. He's proud that he's kind of figured out that Jason's actually trying to put information into the system. But he still is a bit worried about the possibility of a Six conspiracy. So the only other Six we know about his readers is Heather Hart. I'm sure Felix would have known others, but he decides let's put surveillance on Heather Hart because that's a name he mentioned. And there's some connection, it seems, between Jason and Heather Hart. Um, so the concern of the conspiracy doesn't go away. It's not a really important part of the novel overall, but... You know, Dick. I think by you know he's always interested in these totalitarian regimes having their own internal conflicts. Whether it was the Unusuals and the the new men in Our Friends from Fulax Eight, or some of his earlier stories where you saw totalitarian regimes with different factions kind of competing for power. Um, even in Vulcan's Hammer, right? You have the one the modern Vulcan machine at war with the previous model of of the Vulcan computer. Um, so, but that 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 ends this encounter that covers several short chapters between Felix Buckman and Jason Travener. They are going to meet again, but in a very different circumstance. But it's kind of a fascinating section. There's a lot going on here. We learn about the genetic experiments. We we see how Felix does his police interrogation, which is kind of interesting. We have a nice personal moment between these characters as well, where we see Felix as someone who cares about others and and Jason exposed as someone who really doesn't give an F about other people, even his own children that he might have out there. Now in chapter 18, the novel starts to get w- weird and things start to fall away. Um, and, and the ground under of us shifts. It's a typical kind of Philip K. Dick turn, but this is the point where the novel starts to really shift. And then shifts when Alice meets up with Jason as he's leaving the police office and they discuss Felix um, and she immediately says that, you know, you're not safe. They, they're they monitoring you, but they've done more than that. they they actually put an H, a miniature H-bomb under his skin somewhere, and I know how to remove it so you can be safe. This turns out to be true, actually. I think Felix later confirms that they did put this bomb, but it was removed. Um, so it's, it's like a mini-bomb that can kill him if they ever want to just knock him off. So Jason thinks that... That she is a seven as well, perhaps, um, basically because Felix was a seven, and if they're sisters, they were products, possibly, of this, or the brothers and sisters. It's possible that they were products of the same experiment. But her promise to help him, you know, he welcomes her help just like he does every woman in this novel. He takes their help without uh, too much uh, question and without too much expectation of ever paying back his debts. Um. But he 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 does get the help, and she does. She goes to his her quibble, which is essentially their car, their little flying car, and she does remove the bomb, which is just the size of a little seed. Um, now, at this point, she claims to have an incestuous relationship with Felix. She admits that, and, and we learn for the first time that that their relationship is not just brother and sister, but it's actually as as lovers. But nevertheless, she invites him over to the house, making it clear that they're not going to have sex. That her love is only for for Felix, but She has an interest in Jason Travener, and like many other characters, she wants to show off her her collection. A lot of characters have collections in this novel for some reason. Uh, Kathy had her her kind of collection and her books to show off. Kathy will have that as well. Uh, In fact, both Alice and Felix are are cultured people who are interested in things like stamps and music and, and that kind of stuff. So she invites him over to the house saying she only has sexual relations with her brother, so don't, don't think in those terms, which I suppose is not something Jason's not used to hearing. Um, but she, here's what's weird, and here's where the novel starts to get weird, is she seems to know Jason as a performer. She has an awareness of Jason. He, he kind of says, oh, I was once a performer. And she's like, I know. In fact, I have nine of your records. And Jason says, well, I have ten records. And she just says, well, maybe I missed one. But the fact that she collects his records kind of really awakens him to the fact that maybe he's going to get a solution to his problem. The, you know, that's what he's been searching for, one person who recognizes him. One person who is is a fan of his. And so he follows her to, to the house. And in Chapter 19, she does show the records at the house, and they have his name on it. They're just regular LPs, I guess. Um, and you know, his name is on them. They're the things he recognizes. So then she takes she proceeds to give him some mescaline. And that mescaline starts to affect him over the course of this chapter and the next one. And she begins to show him her stuff, primarily her stamp collection, which is something she's really, really proud of. And she's got an obsession with stamps. And she's very obsessed with counterfeits and angered at counterfeits. She, it seems she's a better stamp collector than Felix, but both have an interest in... In stamps, and she has other various collections um, in in the house that she shows off to to Jason. Um, she also invites him at one point to uh, to a phone orgy, which is actually a really interesting. It, it sounds kind of vulgar, and and I guess it is. It's basically you call in to a, like a phone line, and you you're hooked up with strangers, and you have some kind of phone sex orgy. Um, and I, I, I don't know how it fully works if there's some kind of psychological impact that this has on you beyond just the you know, the hearing. Um, I don't think it's just a sex line, I think it's beyond that. But it's a collective experience, right? This is something Dick plays with a lot in so many of his works is the collective experience versus the the individual, right? The black box in Du Adri's dream of electric sheep, uh, the religion that was it the Uti religion in counterclock world are two Recent examples of this we've looked at, but of course it's a common one in his, in his work, is the, the preference for the collective action, right, versus the individual one. So although she's monogamous with Felix Buckman physically, she engages in these phone orgies, and she's trying to convince Jason Travener to get in on it. Oh, here's how it's explained. She says, quote, your Everyone's sexual aspects are linked electronically and amplified, to as much as you can endure. It's addictive because it's electronically enhanced. People, some of them, go so deep into it that they can't pull out. Their whole lives revolver on the weekly or how even daily setting up of the phone network of the network of phone lines. It's regular picture phones which you activate by credit card, so it's f- free at the time you do it. The sponsor's billing once a month, and if you don't pay, they cut the phone off your grid. How many people in this? He asks, and she says thousands at one time. Alice explains, most of them have been doing it for two, three years. They've deteriorated physically and mentally from it because the part of the brain where the orgasm is experienced is gradually burned out. They don't put down, but don't put down the people. Some of the finest and most sensitive minds on earth are involved. For them, it's sacred, holy communion, except you can spot a gritter when you see one. They always look debauched, old, fat listless. The latter become between the full nine orgies, of course. So it's, 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 it's dangerous, obviously, the way she's describing it. But it's also a quasi-religious experience, which is something that, that Dick is very, very fascinated with. Um, so chapter 20, um, the mescaline starts to affect Felix more and more. And they start to look at Felix's collection of things. And Felix is, is apparently very, very interested in the occult, in psychic phenomenons and magic and that kinds of things. And then um, Alice starts to explain that Felix is is really kind of a progressive reformer type within the police structure. We don't see this, but we don't see him being particularly cruel at any point. Um, certainly, he, he's done things. There's been a civil war against the students, and that's, that's led to the continued repression of the students, forced labor camps. Felix is part of that system, obviously. But when he was the head of a forced labor camp, he reformed that. He actually would go through the old statutes, the the old laws, presumably the laws of the United States that he pre- predated the rise of this police state. He went through these old statutes and and reformed these forced labor camps to improve the conditions. He also worked to prevent violence between students and the state, giving the students in, their, in the campuses where they've been hiding out, holding out, <clears throat> um, giving them supplies, making sure they don't die out, making sure they don't have to fight violently for survival. So he actually is trying to reform this police system from, from within. And I, I think that's something that also that Dick is is fascinated by is the possibility of reform from within. I think he's a bit skeptical about movements. We don't see it that often. We see it in our friends from 4 8 but they don't solve the problem, really. I think it's an interesting look at a movement culture, but usually movements don't do the job, right? It's usually help from outside or some Contradiction within the structure of the society itself leads to the change.
1: Um, but the, our
0: image of Felix, if it hasn't already been affected by the way he thinks about children, the way he you know, appreciates Alice despite her problems, uh, his the way he handles all sorts of things, even the secretary in his office, compared to how Jason Travener treats everyone with as disposable. Uh, he's indifferent to them, sometimes openly hostile to them. But definitely now it's confirmed that Felix is is generally a good guy. In fact, Felix was punished for his kind-hearted attitude towards the students, even being demoted from Marshall, which would have been like the top. He says now he only has five people above him. So when he was Marshall, he had even fewer, obviously. But he was demoted to general uh, for, his, for his actions. Now, he starts to really lose it because of the mescaline. So she goes upstairs to to get... Like an anecdote to the to the mescaline and while he's left alone he he tries to play the records he wants he wants proof of his existence and it's not enough to see the records he needs to hear his voice on the records and he puts them into the machine and they they're blank the records are blank and that's the end of part two of this novel so to recap part two of this novel really deals with the interactions between felix and jason travener you have the first learning about well these Felix learns about Jason, becomes interested in him, seeks a solution to this problem, has the encounter with them, and then Jason Travener learns more about Felix at the end. So it's kind of a parallel structure in part two, where it starts with Felix learning about Jason, and then Jason learning about Felix. And then the climax of this section is the realization that, despite seeing his records, there's no, it's not clear that he's in his real, the real world yet, or the, the world, real world he knows. He is still possibly an unperson. These records exist, but they're blank. And that's the end of part two. So in part three, which is basically the whole novel, the, the part four is essentially an epilogue where we get the rest of the story. What happens is the, the story of Travener falls away. It, it becomes less and less relevant. It becomes much more the story of, of Felix. So again, we have an overall parallel structure of the novel from Jason's story of change and, and transformation to Felix dealing with his stuff and his realization of the change in his life. So part three, chapter 21, picks up exactly where the last one left off. He just saw that the records are blank. And he goes to, He tries to get an explanation from Alice. He's still high on, on mescaline. Um, and he, he starts looking around for Alice because she hasn't come back down with the antidote. And then he finds a skeleton. And it seems to be the skeleton of Alice. And he doesn't know when or where or how she died. She just kind of became a skeleton. Um, he tries to escape the room, um, stealing the records as he does this, because now he's with a dead body. And he's been seen with, or he's, I think he was seen with Alice, because the guards saw him go into the room with her, into the apartment together. And so he goes out into the street, desperate for some help. And finally, he's able to get help from a woman, Mary Ann Dominic, is how she reveals herself. And now she's like a neighbor. So she knows about this weird relationship between the Buckmans. So she's a bit aware of it. She doesn't really want to deal with someone leaving the Buckman's apartment. But ultimately, she does degree to help him like he's high on mescaline. She's terrified. They both don't want to drive. There's actually a back and forth about who should drive. Um, she thinks that maybe he's a student or maybe she'll get him in trouble. Obviously, this is a police state. So everyone is suspicious of other people and not fully trusting. Finally, Jason's able to calm her down a little bit and warns her against against fear. Um, Now, he invites her to dinner, basically saying we need to calm down and and solve things. So he takes her to dinner. Meanwhile, he fears he's beginning to lose his mind and he needs to kind of sit down and actually get a bearing about himself. And that brings us to chapter 22, where what we learn in chapter 22 is essentially he's he's back he seems to have his career back a couple things happen one is he um some people at this diner at this restaurant that they go to recognize him and realize him as jason travener also the jukebox has his records on it and, and actually playing so something about something has happened that's given him a career is it the mescaline it seems it's something to do with the mescaline, the drugs, or at least the drug he takes. He thinks his mescaline has shifted him back into his, his regular existence. Um, but he starts to be recognized. So is, the, is, this, is this the faith of our fathers? If you read the faith of our fathers, you might think that's the world we're in now, where there's a kind of a, a delusion that everyone shares, that's everyone part, that's part of, um, but when you take a certain drug that nullifies the hallucinogen. You remember that story? Here, maybe the case is that Jason Travener's life as a celebrity was all a delusion, Um, and he took this drug, and and he's in the real world, where he doesn't exist. But once a drug is taken again, that same drug, he kind of can re-enter that delusion, perhaps. Or maybe it's the inverse, right? That the real world is the one where he's a celebrity, and just temporarily he was phased out into this other existence thanks to the drug. And this mescaline that Alice gave him just reverted him back to the real real world. So he has to begin to work out his, his, you know, what's happening and the different options. So maybe it's, but he's been taking the drug for a long time. Maybe they are living a synthetic life, dreaming of, of a future life, maybe. Um, maybe he'll keep reverting back to these different existences. Uh, based on use of the drugs. Has he been taking the drug the whole time? He really doesn't have answers to these questions. Um, but he does call the police, saying he wants to arrange a meeting with Felix to to try to work out what's happened here. And he's, gonna, he's planning to meet with Felix Buckman, who he thinks he had some rapport with earlier, but then when he realizes that this is going to... He's going to have to ask questions about Alice, and they're going to find Alice's body, and he's going to be... Tied to it, he gets he kind of chickens out. So here's what he thinks after the call with Felix. This presented a new possibility. He had no proof, no evidence, that Alice had actually given him mescaline. It could have been anything. What, for example, was mescaline doing coming from Switzerland? That made no sense. It sounded synthetic, not organic, a product of a lab. Maybe a new multi-ingredient cultist drug, something or something stolen from the police labs. Um. Then he hears his song, uh, "Nowhere, Nothing, Fuck Up," which is a song he he had. But this doesn't. This, so it seems his music is real, but it doesn't jive with the fact that he had these blank records, which don't, um, which seem to suggest he doesn't exist or he's, on, he's still a non-person. So he really has no idea what's going on, and a lot of this chapter is just him kind of working out in his head different possibilities of of what has happened to him. Um, he fears he's going to keep reverting back, but. Um, in a pattern that we've seen several times already in this novel, three times already, he goes to Mary Ann Dominic's apartment. Now, Mary Ann Dominic is not... We're not told that she's an attractive woman. She's a bit um, overweight and, and kind of plain-looking. But Jason Travener, every woman he meets, he seems to end up at their apartment. Um, you know, that's the pattern. It's, actually, if you include that, that, that first ex-girlfriend, Marilyn, that he makes, that, that kind of springs off this whole novel... You know, he's been at like six different women's apartment over the course of, of, this, of the tale. He just sort of goes through and uses them. Now, in chapter 23, uh, Jason, who is now back to being famous and being aw- aware, decides to do something for Mary Ann. And it's, it's the first time he, he actually feels a debt that he has to pay to one of these women who has helped him out and, and cared for him and, and spent time with him during this, these wild few days. He promises to promote Mary Ann's potteries on a, a pottery on his show. She earlier talked about her, her that she's a potter and she's trying to sell her pots and, and she's kind of stuck. She's not really famous. She's not breaking out. But her pots are really good, I guess. And That's not something that Jason is really aware of. I think he doesn't have an artistic sensibility in regards to this, but he does trust her enough to say, OK, I'm going to promote your pots on my, on my show. However, she resists fame. She doesn't think fame is worth worthwhile. So she's kind of the opposite of Jason at this point. Jason, who has fame, wants to get it back. She, who has no fame, doesn't want to become famous, and she's a bit scared to become famous. But nevertheless, Jason does promise to promote her pots, and then they part. And that's, that's the end of his encounter with, with Mary and Dominic, although by the end of the novel, we're going to find that she does indeed have her pots uh, on display, and, and she gets some some fame out of this. So chapter 24 is set in basically Buckman's apartment, Alice Buckman's apartment, where the police have discovered her body and they're trying to investigate what it is. And the, the, you know, the theory is that Dravener has some something to do with it. He's at the, he was sighted at the scene. He called um, earlier asking about, you know, the meeting with, asking for a meeting with Buckman. So that's kind of suspicious. Um, was it drugs, or was it the sex orgy, phone lines? These are all theories that are out there, but anyway, she's dead, and Felix is devastated. He starts to break down, crying in front of his, his subservience. He even admits that she was his wife at one point, and, and when they're kind of horrified to hear this, he actually pulls out Wagner. He, talk, he says earlier that he doesn't like Wagner. Wagner uh, held back music three centuries he said, I mean, Downland was the great music, but Wagner kind of pulled it back to the barbarism. But he uses in Wagner's libretto the Siegfried story, or no, Sigmund and Siglinde story from The Valkyrie um, as evidence that this, is, you know, this, is, this brother-sister relationship is, is legitimate. Um, they want to trace Travener, but they can't. They try and they find that this tracer has been taken off. We, we know when that happened earlier in the story. So Felix uh, Buckman is just devastated by this. Um, Now, one of the people under him, though, starts to worry and starts to explain that there's bigger problems here. One is that the marshals, the people above Felix, who see him as a bit of an enemy, don't like his policy towards the students or through the labor camps that still want to get back to him, can use the Alice relationship. If it gets out there and they probably know about it, but now they have a chance to expose it, they can use that against Felix and so they begin to conspire, uh, Felix begins to conspire a bit, basically using the murder of Alice against the marshals, basically pinning it on one of the marshals, one of the ones that are most dangerous to him, and basically he thinks he has to outscandal the marshals in some way, and, and they're actually trying to concoct a, a conspiracy to pin this murder um, on one of the marshals if they, if they have to. This plot doesn't really go anywhere in the story, but it's, it's interesting that we still see this tension within this structure of the state itself. And Felix, really on his back here, defensive and in grief, is, is still smart enough to try to concoct a, a conspiracy against his superiors. So chapter 25 is, is mostly about Felix coming to realize that Jason Travener's existence has been there all along right or whatever they were where jason travener doesn't exist is not where they are now in this moment of time <clears throat> so they actually pull out travener's report which is now complete and actually has things like gifts to the police station from the jason travener show like seats or tickets or whatever and so he calls the tv stations to get confirmation and and actually they confirm yeah we we, we play jason travener's show like tuesday nights you know ever at what time and he's also got a clean record he's you know got a few little things but basically his record is is clean so they really have nothing to pin on him but still you know in regards to his relationship with alice there's something fishy going on there that he was apparently with her when she died Um, so he's decided that, that maybe there's some kind of conspiracy still going on with the sixes so he increasingly thinks jason is somehow involved in this Murder and he decides to arrest, essentially call in Heather and Jason Travener to, to question them. So, chapter 26 is simply Jason leaving Mary and Dominic's apartment and, and getting his life back, realizing he has his life back, his fame back, and all that. So, he immediately goes back to Heather Hart's apartment. Heather Hart now recognizes him, and, and well, first, he, I think Heather Hart's not there, but other people recognize him they say, like, she's out shopping and he waits for her. And then she comes in, kind of horrified, and sees Jason and and basically like, did you do this? And she's able to show a newspaper report, the headline of which is TV personality sought in connection with death of Pole General's sister. So the newspaper's already reporting on the connection between Alice Buckman's death and Jason Travener being there. And... And Jason tries to explain what happened, how he was there, and how she gave her mescaline, and he doesn't really know what happened. Now, one element of the story here that's interesting is that that Buckman earlier said that that Alice has some affection for sixes, and and Heather here admits that she has a friendship with with Alice Buckman, and Heather, of course, is the six too. And it seems that that was a sexual relationship. So. Um, Heather is acting like this, like losing someone she deeply cares about. Um, so even Heather is capable of, of, a, of feeling grief, which is something that seems is outside of the experience of Jason Travener. At least that's what we learned from the Ruth Ray discussion. Um, and she's actually saying, like, if you could kill her, you could kill me. So he's kind of frightened of her. Of her. And she wants him to, to basically report to the police and turn himself in. And so chapter 26 ends with Jason calling the the police. And then this brings us to the final chapter of the novel, where we hope most things will be resolved. There's actually a lot to to talk about in this this final chapter. There's actually like four things that that happen in chapter 27. The first is the explanation of the drug that is at the heart of this whole mystery of Jason Travener's transition. And it turns out it has nothing to do with Jason Travener at all. It's all about Alice Buckman. So the drug she was taking was KR-3. And here's how it's uh, described. It's actually an experimental drug. It's kind of like we've seen that before and like now wait for last, last year. Um, and she gets the ex- he gets the explanation from um, a guy named Phil Westerberg. He says, we have no way of determining as yet What would constitute an overdose with KR3? It's currently being tested on detainee volunteers in the San Bernardino forced labor camp. But so far, anyhow, as I was explaining, time bending is a function of the brain and goes on as long as the brain is receiving input. Now, we know that the brain can't function if it can't bind space as well. But as to why, we don't know yet. Probably it has something to do with an instinct to stabilize reality in such a fashion that sequences can be ordered in terms of before and after. That would be a time or more importantly, space occupying, as well as the three-dimensional object as compared to, say, the drawing of that object. So he further explains, a drug such as KRS-3 breaks down the brain's ability to exclude one unit of space out of another. So here versus there is loss as the brain tries to handle perception. It can't tell if an object has gone away or it's still there. When this occurs, the brain can no longer exclude alternative spatial vectors. It opens up the entire range of spatial variation. The brain can no longer tell which objects exist and which are only latent on spatial possibilities. So as a result, competing spatial corridors are opened into which the garbled precept system enters and the whole universe appears to the brain to be in the process of creation. Now there's a little bit more explanation, but basically this drug allows people to experience different realities, right? But the tr- tr- twist here, and I guess this is really a Philodickian kind of, leap is that anyone who's a subject to the perception of of the the user of this drug gets sucked into that reality as well. So they get dragged along into that into that reality. So there's actually a reality bending aspect to it. It's not just in the brain. It's in how the brain perceives reality. Reality is then the idea here is I guess reality is simply a perception of a brain. And if that brain can change that reality it pulls that change with everyone else. It's a bit like a, a theme Dick plays with in the story of The Electric Ant, where uh, a robotic character is able to reprogram himself and in doing so, change in reality for like their actual reality out there. So what's happened is actually that Alice, it's explained that Alice is the one who took the KR-3, and what she had is she had a desire to meet Travener, so she created a reality in which meeting Travener was possible. So everything that happened the, you know, from the time he wakes up to her encounter with him was all set up for that, right? And that's why she has the, the records. But she had to create a reality in which Jason Travener was a non-person for her to encounter the police, to drag in Felix Buckman into it, and then, you know, set up that meeting. And then where does the death of, of Alice Buckman come from? Well, it was essentially a drug overdose. She took so much that she was she was damaged by that. So it this does sort of... Uh, forgive Jason Travener of it, but Buckman at some level still blames Jason Travener for this because it was her fascination with Jason that led her to take this drug and use it in this way. So um, that leads into the very next scene in which they get the call from Jason Travener who wants to turn himself in. And Travener calls and and talks to Buckman and Buckman's like, you're an idiot. We're just going to kill you. You know, you're responsible for the death of Alice. And he's still feeling this intense grief. And, and Buckman says, you know, I intend to actually kill him. Um, he doesn't, though. And so after the meeting, he, you know, Buckman turns himself in. And, and it, he says, I want to clear myself. I want to clear my name. And I don't want to go through the process honestly. And then Buckman eventually decides to, to let him do it and, and chooses not to kill Jason Travener. Um, and so the rest of the novel is essentially Jason Travner off on his own thinking about the situation. And there's a very interesting conversation he has with himself about kind of awareness and randomness and the, and the police, that from the police point of view, and here's the key, from the police point of view, someone's only important if they're made aware of by the police, right? So if you commit a crime and the police don't know about it, it's as if that crime does, didn't exist, right? Or if, if you are not even if there's not a police file about you, or even if there is a police file, if the police don't ever open it up and look at it, you're essentially a non-person from the perspective of, of the system, right? Now, we know that this, this encounter was sort of set up by Alice's use of this drug, right? But he still asks himself, why did I pick Travener out of a planet of six billion people? This one specific man who never harmed anyone, never did anything except let his file come to the attention of the authorities. That's the right of it there, he realized. Jason Travener let himself come to our authorities, to our attention. And as they say, once come to the authorities' attention, never completely forgotten. This is, I think, a key statement about the police state itself and the the danger of an encounter with the police. Um, A lot of the paranoia of the late 60s, early 70s, I think, coming to the forefront here. But Jason Travener is an interesting case because he's someone who wanted to be known. And that's what really bothers Felix Buckman a little bit about Jason Travener's decisions and choices. Because the average person doesn't want to be known by the police or the system or be, you know, be identified. But Jason Travener is someone who had this deep desire to be known, right? And that's what he lost when he shifted into this other world, Alice Buckman's delusion or false reality he just desperately wanted to return to the status of being being known and and that's what he strove for and so this is almost irrational in his mind now the rest of the novel is 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 based on buckman kind of facing his grief of Olaf as his sister and his awareness of of the fragility of existence and everything and um I think it's like, at a gas station or something, essentially. Yeah, he, he, where, where people are filling up their quibbles and things. And he sees a black man there. Um, and, and this is the scene. Uh, I'll just read it. Into his coat pocket, Phil Buckman reached with a cold, shaken fingers. He found his ballpoint pen, plucked it out, groped in his pockets for a square of paper, any paper, any sheet from a memo pad. Finding it, he placed it on the hood of the black man's quibble. In the white, stark light of the service station, Buckman drew on the paper a heart pierced with an arrow. Trembling with cold, he turned towards the black man pacing and extended the piece of drawn-on paper to him. His eyes bulked briefly in surprise. The black man grunted, accepting the piece of paper, held it by the light examining it. Buckman waited. The black man turned the paper over and saw nothing on the back, once again scrutinized the heart with the arrow piercing it. He frowned, shrugged, and handed the paper back to Buckman and wandered on, his arms once again folded his large back to the police general. The slip of paper fluttered away, lost. Silently, Buckman returned to his own quibble, lifted opened the door, squeezed inside behind his wheel. He turned on the motor, slammed the door, and flew up into the night sky. His ascent, warming bulbs, winged red before him and behind. They shut automatically off, then, and he droned along the line of the horizon, thinking nothing. Then tears came upon him. All of a sudden, he spun the steering wheel. The quibble popped violently, buckled, leveled, and laddered onto the descending trajectory. Moments later, once again, he glided to a stop on the hard glare beside the parked empty quibble, the pacing black man, the fuel pumps. Buckman braced to stop, shut off the engine, silently crept out. The black man was looking at him. Buckman walked towards the black man. The black man did not retreat. He stood where he was. Buckman reached him, held out his hands, arms, and seized the black man, folding him with them and hugged him. The black man grunted with surprise and dismay. Neither said anything. They stood for an instant, and then Buckman let the black man go, turned, walked shakily back to his quibble. That's the scene. Now this man turns to him and says, wait, I want to talk to you. And Buckman, you know, he asks like for a map or something, but then he explains like, I understand. They chit-chat a little bit, and he shows a business card, but he says, "I I understand why you did that, that handing of the note and then later hugging him. And he doesn't really say anything beyond that. He just says, I understand that sometimes people are sad and sometimes people need this human connection. And he says, why don't you come over to my house someday? And his card had his address. And and Buckman actually says, yes, I will visit you. And that's the scene. It's very weird and, and kind of amazing actually. Um, but that's what it's about. Buckman who at this point in his life really has nobody he, he lost his wife his sister he's he's got his I guess attendees around him he's got his regular job he's still got that but he's lost that that he's feeling the grief that's what he's experienced at this point the, the loss of his sister and the loss of some degree of his reality and he just feels a need for a human connection something real and he finds it with a random stranger it's a really great moment. It's, it's, it's actually a quite beautiful moment, I think, especially the response of this man. That's just, you know, that we need that sometimes. You know, how how often does that really happen where, where some stranger, you know, appreciates your loneliness, your depression, your, your sense of loss and doesn't preach to you, doesn't uh, feel the need to give advice, just is there for you. It, it's kind of quite wonderful, actually. And... Uh, Buckman leaves the scene feeling thinking of, of John Dowland and thinking of his lute book and 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 thinking he's going to play that that those lute songs by John Dowland even if that's going to mean he's going to have to remember Alice and, and that he can have some relationship with Alice through through that music and that and that's the story now part four is an epilogue where we, We just get kind of a, what happens to these characters a little bit. First, Jason Travener is acquitted of the murder of Alice Buckman. So his strategy of going through the system works out. Uh, It seems there was like a legal failure, but we know he's innocent. Um, The drug, the use of the drug KR3 is abandoned. Um. Uh, Kathy Nelson, the, the, the forging, the girl who forged the documents, uh, learns that in fact she is being delusional, that her husband has been long long dead. and just as McNulty Salt said, um, Ruth Ray marries one more person, just one more person in her life, so she finally finds um, someone kind of meaningful to be with. She dies something like six years after the, the close of the novel. Who else? Oh, yeah. Mary, Dom- Mary Ann Dominic does become famous because her ceramic ware is advertised by Jason Travener on his show. And she becomes a bit famous for for that. And, and she has some appreciations for that. Um, basically, the students are ba- the students in their ghettos and their universities give up and surrender. And the, the Civil War, the Second Civil War ends basically with the victory of the police state. And. Um, these are sent off to forced labor camps, but these, these schools are then remodeled and reopened as, um, as places where, basically reopened as universities, but under police control and under police regulation. Felix Buckman eventually retires, and in, doing, and in his retirement writes an exposé revealing the, the, kind of the horrible elements of the police state. Now, Allison and Felix have had a son, Barney, and he eventually becomes a policeman, but he's paralyzed in a, in a, in a, in a scuffle with, with some criminal. And then Jason Travener, he doesn't die till 2047, so that's he's going to live into well a wage, almost 100 years old, I think. Yeah, I think about 100 years old. Um, and his, the last actually lines of the, the novel are about his ongoing relationship with Marianne Dominic. And how she considered Jason Travener, you know, an important figure in her life. And and how Jason Travener actually kept that blue vase that she gave him during their brief encounter. So um, the final line here is is about... Travener actually experiencing some love here. Um, quote: The blue vase made by Aunt Mary Ann Dominic and purchased by Jason Travener as a gift for Heather Hart wound up in the private collection of modern pottery. It remains there to this day and is much treasured. And in fact, by a number of people who know ceramics, openly and genuinely cherished and loved. Now, the love is 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 towards the pottery, but um, it's it is a meaningful connection to Jason Travener to the rest of the world. So we. We imagine, we we see here Jason Travener, I guess, learning something from his experience. Although Dick doesn't really dwell on that. It's not so much about Jason Travener's arc at that point. It's, in some ways, I think the end of the novel is much more about Felix Buckman's uh, arc. Now, I want to say this is something Dick never did in his earlier novels. Dick would always describe a world you know, in crisis, you know, often would describe a world in crisis and, and stop just at that moment of that breakdown and then leave you to imagine what happened after that with the characters and with the system. Right. Often he shows the fall of that system. Dick doesn't do that here. What Dick does is tell you the future, but he tells you actually that the system is going to ungo. The police are going to win out. The students are going to fail. The police, they will endure. And and that's just that that's 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 life. There's no challenge to the system. There's there's no shattering of it. The most we get is Felix Buckman writing a book saying the police state has all these corruptions and problems. But and he can do that because of his fame and his rank in the in the system. We don't get the shattering of the system as we do in so many other novels. And I think that's an important change because in Flow My Tears, The Policeman Said, and Scanner Darkly in Valis. In those novels in particular, the, the system endures, which is a change, for I think, in Philip Dick's career. And he's, in most of his works, he's not the pessimist. He has a lot of hope of, of the future. He leaves a lot of it to our imagination, where it may go, but it's usually very hopeful. He's not at this point in his career. This is a very, very bleak novel. There's a little bit of personal growth, in these characters. But you know, there's no systemic change. The police state is victorious. In, in this way, I think it very much is a novel of the anxieties of the late 60s and, and early 70s, the conflict between the students and the, and the state. I think Nixon even talked at points about, essentially, the, the conflict he was in with, with the students and the other anti-war activists and the, the new left was essentially a new civil war that language i think dick was picking up from at the time this was written before nixon's resignation so i don't know if it was published when when exactly what day it was published but i think it was written before uh, it was being written while nixon was still president so that's part of the context here of course and and dick was certainly a pessimist about, about richard nixon um so anyways that's my my read through of full my tears the policeman said um, a lot of the same typical Philip Dick themes are expressed here. We have uh, drugs leading to distorted realities. We have uh, relationships, uh, the, the serial monogamy of Jason Travener versus the marriage between Alice and Felix Buckman, uh, true love versus disposable relationships, the need to have authentic relationships, uh, as Ruth Ray tells them, as Felix Buckman realizes. We have a little bit here in race relations, which it's not a huge theme in Dick's fiction, but there's enough to, in a lot of his ber- works, to point that out. Um, Dick here is a pessimist about the future of race relations, suggesting a future police state will engage in, a, basically, a policy of genocide. I think that gives some meaning to the final scene when it is a black man who Felix Buckman encounters and interacts with at the end, having that human moment, even if it's completely random. It, it, it is with a black person, one of the most oppressed people in this uh, in this novel. We have a lot here about fame, about uh, celebrity status, about the media in regards to the uh, connected to that, about the disposable nature of, of, of media. Um, even though that's not, not the explanation we're really given at the end, I think we can kind of metaphorically look at this as just the experience of many celebrities who are famous and then get unknown. In fact, the epilogue suggests that Jason Travener's career is not eternal he does become more or less forgotten by the later 21st century the middle 21st century when he died a lot here on the state a lot here on the police encounters with the police Um, this is probably our closest we get at the actual operations of a police force in the same way in fr- our friends in Frolock State, we got a very close and intimate look at the workings of, of a state. Here we, we get a close working of the day-to-day operations of the police force, something where, that Dick is going to remain interested in when he picks up the pen again to write his novel A Scanner Darkly. <clears throat> so I think I'm going to leave it at that. Uh, I've said enough. I've crammed all this into one episode. Um, so thanks for bearing with me on that. Uh, if you have any of your own thoughts about Flow My Tears, the policeman said, how do you interpret this novel? What do you think are the important themes? What do you, what do you make of the character of Felix Buckman or, or Jason Travener? Who do you think the main protagonist of the novel really is? How do you think of their arcs, compare and contrast? Um, how do you think about how Dick's attitude towards the state maybe is changing, as I'm suggesting? I think it's becoming more a rigid look, a more cynical and pessimistic look at the state. Um, what effect if any do you think Dick's experiences of, of 1973 had on the writing of this novel? Sorry, those, those happened in 1974, so this novel would have been mostly written at the time that those happened. So I guess that's not that important. They, they are going to affect his later novels, I think. So I guess those are my main questions for you as I close up this, 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 um, this particular work by Philip Dick. So um, next, yeah. So next, we're going to look. I, I'm going to look at some short stories. Um, we we haven't looked at a short story in a while because Dick's mostly been writing novels. So I, guess, I guess we had Cadbury the Beaver who lacked, but um, we've had a couple novels since then. So Dick actually publishes two novels, through, no no through, no sorry, th- uh, two short stories before here he publishes another novel, and that will be uh, the pre-persons and A Little Something for Our tempionats. I think these are both published in 1974. A Little Something for Our Tempionats is about uh, kind of malaise about space travel. It's kind of an interesting story about space exploration and where it is at that point. And The Pre-Persons is a very important novel about abortion. And it was one of the more controversial stories that, that Dick wrote during his lifetime. So those will be up next, and then we'll, we'll begin with novels again after that, looking at uh the one mainstream novel philip dick published during his lifetime and that is confessions of a crap artist so that's what the next novel we'll be looking at after i after i give you my thoughts about the pre-persons and a little something for us tepunats. so that'll be it for now thanks as always for listening to this podcast and following me on my journey through the works of philip k dick um, I really like Flow My Tears. The policeman said, "It's it's a novel I've come to a lot. I think it's one of the first of his novels that I read. I don't quite remember what's the first, but this was definitely one of the earliest ones I, I read. I don't think it. I do think it's too it's a little too pessimistic for me. I, I like Dick when he's more funny and cheery and optimistic, but um, this novel in particular is not not that. Uh, nevertheless, I think it's very very interesting and has so much good stuff." in terms of how he sees the police state, how he sees government in general and government operation, um, how he sees celebritydom and all these things. So I, I definitely recommend this one. It's, it's, it's a worthy, um, it's worthy on, on any top ten list of Dick's novels. So that's it. I'll see you next time. Thanks again for listening. To feel these changes happening in me